Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps, which are due out in December. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, behind the knife, abside review. The topic today is stomach. So, Kevin, let's start with some anatomy as always. So, can you please walk us through what's the blood supply to the stomach? Yeah, the stomach has some redundant blood supply. So, there's quite a few vessels that feed it. We'll keep it simple to start here. You got your left gastric and you've got your right gastric. The left gastric is coming off the celiac artery and the right gastric is coming off the proper hepatic artery and that feeds the lesser curve of the stomach. And then for the greater curve of the stomach, you've got your gastroepiploques, both your right and left gastroepiploque. The right gastroepiploque is a continuation of the GDA, and the left gastroepiploque is coming off the splenic artery. And then, of course, you've got some of your short gastrics also coming off uh, the splenic artery. So we talked about it briefly in the esophageal chapter, but for patients who undergo esophagectomy and have a gastroconduit, what's the most important blood to supply that, that, that uh, conduit? That's the right gastroepiploic artery. Right, absolutely. So we have to preserve that right gastroepiploic. It's a very important vessel during esophagectomy. So there's some high-yield classification systems when it comes to the stomach, and one of those is for hiatal hernias. It's important clinically, and it's important to know for the abscise. So, John, what are the different types of hiatal hernia, and how does that affect management? Yep, so there's four types of hiatal hernias. you got type 1 through 4. Type 1 is the most predominant, a greater than 90%. It's a sliding hernia, and how do we manage that? We do typically do a repair only if it's symptomatic. The next type is type 2, that's a parasophageal hernia, and typically we repair that. Type 3 is a sliding plus a parasophageal hernia, and also gets repaired when it's found. And finally, type 4 is a, the entire stomach plus another organ, most commonly the colon, is part of the hiatal hernia, and we also repair that if found. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that type 1, which is that G junction, slides up above the diaphragm. Um, and then the type 2 to 4, which is uh, more of a you know, true herniation of the actual stomach or other contents up. And those are at risk for volvulus and at risk for incarceration and strangulation. So we absolutely need to repair those. We'll have a good image in the abside companion, so make sure you, you look at that and, and understand uh, those different uh, distinctions. So... When we talk about malignancies, there's the Seward-Stein classification for GE junction tumors. So, Kevin, what are those? Yeah, so it's type 1 through 3. Type 1 is a cancer in the distal esophagus, so 1 to 5 centimeters above the anatomic EG junction. Type 2 is in the cardia, so it's within 1 centimeter above and 2 centimeters below the EG junction. And then type 3 is subcardial stomach, so 2 to 5 centimeters below the EG junction. Yeah, so the way that might present on the outside is they may just tell you you have a Seward-Stein type 2 tumor and ask you what type of resection you need to do for that tumor in that location. And so just be aware of that classification system and that it's clinically used, so be sure to review that. John, gastric ulcers were... Moving on up with our classification systems for different pathologies of the stomach. What are the different types of gastric ulcers? Yeah, the gastric ulcer stuff is kind of difficult to understand because it's not intuitive. But there's type 1 through 5. And type 1 is an ulcer located on the lesser curve. Type 2 is a ulcer on the lesser curve and the 
duodenum. So there's two ulcers there. Type three is a prepyloric ulcer. Type four is an ulcer on the proximal lesser curve or the cardia of the stomach. And type five are diffuse ulcers that are usually caused by NSAIDs. So John, which of those type one through four are secondary to high acid production? So that'd be your type two and type three ulcers. Great. Okay. So moving on to some uh, pathology out of uh, anatomy and classification systems. Let's talk about gastric volvulus, Kevin. How does gastric volvulus present? Yeah. So the classic presentation is the Borchardt's triad. So the epigastric pain, retching, and inability to pass an NG tube. Yeah. So the way this will be asked on the test, they'll give you somebody with a parasophageal hernia because they are associated with parasophageal hernias. And they'll have that triad, that pain, retching, and the nurse is not going to be able to ask or to pass an NG tube, but they're going to ask you what you want to do. And they, in that setting, if you can't get them decompressed, uh, the answer is going to be go into the operating room. Uh, John, what are the three, there's three different types of gastroglobulus. So what are those? So you have organoaxial, which is the most common type of uh, gastric volvulus, and that's a rotation along the axis of the stomach from the GE junction to the pylorus. And we'll have a good picture in to explain this within the text. The next type is mesoaxial, which is less common. It's a rotation along the short axis of the stomach, bisecting the lesser and greater curvature. And then finally, you have the combined type, where you have organoaxial and mesoaxial together. Yep. So yeah, make sure you re, 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 uh, review that image and uh, have a good understanding of those different types. Kevin, uh, how do we how do we treat gastroglobulus? Yeah, typically this is with emergent surgery, reduction, hernia repair, and gastropexy. Okay. And, and what if do you have some strangulated stomach? Like what we mentioned before, fortunately the stomach is well vascularized, but well, let's say you have some dead stomach. Yeah. Well, then you're going to have to do a partial gastrectomy and reconstruction. Okay. What if the patient is, are there any options, non-operative options, especially for patients who aren't good surgical candidates? Yeah, there's, there are endoscopic decompression ways that this can be treated. And how is that? So uh, typically they do a gastropexy with uh, double peg tubes. Yeah. You need two points of fixation um, to prevent that stomach from rotating on itself. So two peg tubes. Um, for fixation and gastropexy, but that's only in patients who absolutely will not tolerate a surgery. In the, on, the, on the test, the answer is most likely going to be surgery. You're unlikely to give you that sick of a patient that can't even uh, undergo an operation. Jason, how would we approach a patient with gastrobulbus clinically? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first you need to, the, the basic principles of resuscitating the patient, you need to communicate with their anesthesia provider because they're at a very high risk for aspiration during induction. If the patient could tolerate it, this I would approach this patient minimally invasively as long as they would be able to you know tolerate the pneumoperitoneum. But from there, you just you reduce it uh, like you would approach any you know parasophageal hernia. So you, you reduce it, you performing mediastinal dissection. You will typically pex the stomach and repair your hiatus. So Kevin, moving on to gastroesophageal reflux disease are incurred. So when a patient presents, what are symptoms that are considered alarm symptoms? Yeah, so these can include things such as dysphagia, odynophagia, weight loss, anemia, and GI bleeding. Okay, what's a, why are those considered alarm symptoms? Because this, it could be something more severe than just GERD. We need to get an endoscopy to rule out malignancy. Yeah, exactly. It's typically with some, not stuff we have to deal with the surgeons. It's usually primary care, but that might show up there. So if you have a patient with those symptoms, you need to, the, the answer will be to get an EGD. What about medical management of GERD? So the most important thing is uh, lifestyle modifications, such as weight loss, elevate the head of the bed, and avoiding aggravating foods. And then, of course, the kind of mainstay medical treatment is with PPI therapy. Okay. Yeah. So uh, PPIs really, you know, change the management of GERD. They're very effective. If you have symptoms or symptoms through the PPI or persistent symptoms, those patients need an EGD. What are the indications, John, for a to get sent to a surgeon? Yeah, typically we see these patients come to our clinics because they fail in medical management. It's either that or they desire not to have prolonged or lifelong PPIs. And also if they have esophageal, extraesophageal manifestations such as asthma, hoarseness, cough, chest pain, and aspiration. Okay, well, what, how do we typically work these patients up preoperatively? Yeah, hopefully they'll have this done before they show up. But the preoperative workup is start with a barrier swallow. And you can do it up or an upper endoscopy, either one usually go hand in hand. 
ambulatory pH testing, and then finally esophageal manometry to evaluate for an underlying motility disorder. Yeah, it's to be some combination of that, and it really depends on the individual patients. So barium swallow is good for looking for esophageal, one, esophageal motility. It's got to be a, a poor man's esophageal motility, as, as well as evaluating for a hiatal hernia. Of course, at upper endoscopy to make sure there's no mucosal lesions or Barrett's or malignancy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about ambulatory pH testing. You know, I'll tell you that if you have a, if you have esophagitis or in Barrett's on your on your EGD, you don't necessarily need that because you can definitely see the sequela of that GERD and that reflux. But certainly, patients without hiatal hernias that can be part of the, the workup as well. Esophageal manometry that's important if you're thinking about doing an anti-reflux procedure with a raft that you want to make sure that they have normal underlying motility. So some combination of those tests, and so that's good. Talking more about that ambulatory pH, there's a scoring system that we use. What is that and how is it calculated? Yeah, that's the Demeester score. So the criteria that go into the Demeester score is the percent of total time of pH less than 4, the percent upright time where a pH is less than 4, a percent supine time, uh, pH less than four. It's the number of reflex episodes greater than five minutes. It's the longest reflex episode in minutes. And it, we kind of calculate that and the Demeester score of 14.72 or greater is consistent with reflux. Yeah, that's, that's got classically how it's calculated. And again, yeah, 14.72, it seems like an oddly specific number, but yeah, greater than that is consistent with reflux. Now there's other things that are being done with ambulatory pH testing, the Bravo probe, and those type of things that are a little bit different as well, some different impedance testing. But the demister is the classic one to know. With regard to that, let's say that you have a patient who maybe had you know prior GI surgical history and, and you're worried that maybe they have bile reflux. What, would, what kind of testing would you need to do for that patient? Yeah, we work them up with an impedance probe and then also would change your management, surgical management down the line. And how so? Instead of doing a typical GERD operation, we would do uh, a RU and Y reconstruction. Yeah, so those, let's say they had a Bilroth 2, uh, they have some bile reflux, um, and those patients would get reconstructed with RU and Y uh, anatomy, and you would need to do impedance testing to, to, to diagnose that. Okay, Kevin, back to you. So... We're you know, trying to get these, these patients ready for anti-reflex surgery. What are the key steps of an anti-reflex surgery? Yeah, I've definitely seen this uh, as a testable item before. So what you're really trying to do is you're trying to restore the normal anatomic position of the stomach and the GE junction with at least three centimeters of intra-abdominal esophagus. And so if you have any hernia associated with it, this must be completely reduced, which requires mediastinal dissection to make sure there's adequate esophageal mobilization. And then any defect in the diaphragmatic crura must be adequately closed with permanent suture. Okay, yeah, those are the basic principles. So, yeah, you need to restore that normal anatomy, bring that stomach, bring that GE junction down below, back into the abdomen, below the diaphragm. Again, three centimeters of intra-abdominal esophagus to perform your high mediastinal dissection in order to achieve that. Repair your hiatal hernia, repair your your cruise with a permanent suture. Then when it comes to time to for the, the fundiplication of the wrap, um, talk to me a little bit about that. What do we need to do there? Yeah, so you have to have a complete mobilization of the fundus to help recreate that anti-reflux valve with the fundiplication. And so usually you have a two centimeter long, quote unquote, floppy fundiplication performed over a large bougie, something like a 54 French. And then some people prefer to do a partial fundoplication. Yeah, there's more evidence now that with a partial fundoplication, you may have less incidence of dysphagia, but equal symptom control. So a lot of people are, are now going to these partial wraps, the, the posterior 270, the toupee really being the most common. There's a few other variations, but certainly either a full 360 Nissen or a partial wrap are acceptable. And it, it depends on a surgeon preference for the most part. So, John, let's say you're in the OR and anesthesia says they're having trouble ventilating the patient. What are you worried about? Let's say this, this occurred while you're, you're doing your mediastinal dissection. What are you worried about and, and what are your next steps? Yeah, so this is a commonly asked question. I've seen it a few times. So I'd be worried about a capnothorax, thorax. And the way we would treat the capnothorax thorax is that we usually had a violation of the pleura. So we, uh, we would enlarge the tear within the pleura to avoid a tension capnothorax. thorax. 
uh, additional ways to drain that cathodothorax going forward once you kind of alleviate the concern for tension is place a red rubber catheter with one end to the pleura and the other end into the abdomen. This, this helps equalize the pressures between the two cavities. At the end of the procedure, you bring one end of the red rubber outside the abdomen and place it to water seal while the salva from anesthesia side is administered. And finally, if you really ran into issues, you can decompress the chest intraoperatively. So be sure to prep your lower chest in during the beginning operation. Yeah, so capnothorax, uh, it can happen with the tear in the pleura, especially if you create kind of a one-way valve where stuff's going into the chest and then it can't come back out. You know, another key point that we, we failed to mention, I think, is be sure you lower your um, pneumoperitoneum. So lower the pressure in your pneumoperitoneum, that can help. But really, you're trying to equalize those pressures between the chest and the abdomen. And for the most part, you can ventilate through that. Rarely will you need some form of decompression with either, you know, a percutaneous angiocath into the chest. But you want to be sure that you prep that chest in so you have that as an option intraoperatively. The other way this will often present too, including what you've asked me, is that the anesthesia will start talking about high-end tidal CO2s. And this is specifically when you're doing your mediastinal dissection would clue you into capnothorax. The other things you must consider during that part is hypoventilation, CO2 embolus, and malignant hyperthermia all cause high-end tidal CO2s during your operation. Absolutely. Great points. So, Kevin, let's say you, you, you finish the operation and you get a chest x-ray and the, the nurse calls you concerned with the, that the radiologist called them and then said there was a two-centimeter pneumothorax. What are you thinking there? Yeah, so once again, I'm thinking that this is likely a capnothorax and uh, not a true pneumothorax, and it, it should resolve. So I'd go check on the patient and check their vitals and put them on some supplemental oxygen. And as long as they're not overly symptomatic, we can generally watch these. But if they do become symptomatic or it's enlarging, then we'd have to consider aspiration or thoracostomy too. Yeah, you certainly don't want to blow it off, but for the most part, like you said, these are capnothoraxes. They quickly resorb. Usually the patients are, are not symptomatic. Then it doesn't require much other than some supplemental O2, but absolutely need to check on the patient and, and confirm their stability. John, so let's say that the surgery goes well, the patient's recovering. How do you want to manage them postoperatively? Yeah, there's a few key things you want to do. And if you've ever been an intern taking care of these patients on the floor, you'd probably remember this. But you want to schedule the antiemetics immediately postoperatively and not just put them PRN, but actually schedule them. And you want to avoid, to help avoid all nausea and retching that may occur. You want a soft diet for a few weeks and you want to avoid foods such as meat, raw vegetables, bread, and carbonated beverages for about four to six weeks. Okay. Let's say the patient comes back to see you. A couple of weeks later, they're complaining that was some dysphagia or some difficulties swallowing. How do you want to manage that? Yeah, so if they can maintain hydration and still take oral intake, minor dysphagia can be typically managed expectantly, so you can wait it out. It's a common occurrence after a wrap. A severe dysphagia, especially if they're getting, you know, they can't tolerate any liquids, you want to get an esophagram and you're concerned for a technical error such as a wrap is too tight. And if you have dysphagia persisting past six weeks postoperatively, you also want to get an esophagram. And this is where you're concerned for a recurrent hernia or a slid, a wrap that slid. And if that's not present, you also may want to consider dilation depending what your anatomy looks like. Yeah, so almost all patients get some form of some mild dysphagia after a wrap. It generally resolves with time. So as you say, if it's severe, they can't handle their own secretions. Well, that's a technical error. That patient needs to go back to the OR. But otherwise... You can kind of manage them unexpectedly, and if it's persistent, you know, it'll work it up and potentially perform a little dilation if there's not a, a technical error. Okay, so very similar, but with some nuances, is the treatment and management of a hiatal hernia. So, Kevin, how do we diagnose hiatal hernias? So often these can be seen on chest x-ray, but to kind of formally visualize it, generally we get a CT scan, and then... As we're working these patients up, they'll generally get a barium swallow and an EGD. Okay. Yeah, great. So those are all ways that you can, that these are diagnosed. So John had previously mentioned it, but what's the management based on type of idle hernia? Yeah. So for type one, if they have, don't have significant reflux disease, you don't need to repair these. And if you do repair them, you use the same indications as for the GERD patients. And then for all symptomatic parasophageal hernias, types two through four, these should be repaired, especially if there's any obstructive symptoms. Yeah, so so for what even if they're asymptomatic, so asymptomatic parasophageal hernias, do all those require a repair? I think it's a patient dependent thing. If it's an elderly patient that you know 
is asymptomatic, you can maybe observe it. Yeah, I, I would say that for parasophageal hernias, they should be repaired on a routine basis in almost everybody. Now, if they're a very poor surgical candidate, you know, watchful waiting is an option, but really all of these, if they can be repaired, should be repaired because they are a risk for long-term volvulus. So laparoscopic repair is really the preferred approach when it comes to the hiatal hernias, although there are certainly open and even transthoracic approaches for certain patients. Really the key steps is reduction of that hernia. So you need to mobilize and reduce that hernia sac. That's going to decrease your early recurrence. The use of mesh is somewhat controversial for, you know, the guidelines and the data would support the use of an absorbable mesh for very large hiatal hernias over eight centimeters. Eight centimeters is kind of like cut off, but really it's more if it's under tension or the tissues aren't that well, and you need some uh, buttress of an absorbable mesh there and you can put one in. Just understanding that might increase your incidence of having postoperative dysphagia, and there is no evidence that long-term that reduces a recurrence, but it may improve and reduce short-term recurrences. There's, you know, insufficient evidence to really recommend one way over another of, of, or one technique over another, or the use or not use of mesh, but it is reasonable with those large defects, and again, if those tissues are compromised in any way. You need to be sure that you use a permanent suture when you perform your chiroplasty or close that chiro. And then you're using a, performing a fundiplication, any of the ones that we talked about previously at the time of the repair. Again, it's really kind of the same principles as your anti-reflex procedure for GERD. So, John, let's say that we've performed our, we've reduced our hernia. We've done a high circumferential medial mediastinal dissection of the esophagus, but we just can't get that three centimeters of intra-abdominal esophagus that we're shooting for. Do we have any options? Yeah, the first option would be to increase or further your mediastinal dissection to try to pull everything down. But your next option would be a colonist gastroplasty. And this is an esophageal lengthening procedure that may be used if unable to obtain an adequate intra-abdominal esophageal length. Yeah, it's unlikely in reality you would ever have to do that. Normally, if you're performing your high mediastinal dissection, you can get adequate intra-abdominal esophagus in almost all circumstances. But I have seen this show up on the test, and that's what you do if you can't do that. And they give you the option to cause gastroplasty. So let's move on to gastroduodenal ulcer disease or peptic ulcer disease. So Kevin, what's the association with peptic ulcer disease and H. pylori? Yeah, there's a very uh, close association. So H. pylori is found in 75% of gastric ulcer disease and 95% of duodenal ulcers. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, uh, there's a high association, especially with the duodenal um, ulcers. Uh, what's the treatment? Uh, so the classic triple therapy, which is a PPI, clarithromycin, and amoxicillin or metronidazole. Yep. Yeah, make sure you know that because they, they may ask you for those specific drugs in, in the treatment of, of uh, H. pylori. So John, what about stress ulcers, gastric stress ulcers? What are risk factors that set patients up for this? Yeah, these are what we typically see in the ICU. So prolonged ventilation greater than 48 hours is one risk factor. Coagulopathy, head trauma, also known as Cushing's ulcers, burns, which are known as curling ulcers. And obviously, if you have a history of peptic ulcer disease, it's a higher risk for gastric stress ulcers. Yeah, what are, your high, what are the two most important factors? That would be your prolonged ventilation and coagulopathy. Yeah, those are the ones that with the highest. I mean, we hear about the head trauma, the Cushing's ulcers, the burns, the curling ulcers. Those are certainly risk factors, but the ones that are most strongly associated is that prolonged ventilation and coagulopathy. Okay, what's the association with a malignancy for both gastric and duodenal ulcers? Yeah, so the gastric ulcers have a higher risk of malignancy as compared to du duodenal ulcers. So Biopsies recommended for gastric ulcers, but not necessarily for duodenal ulcers. Yeah, most of those duodenal ulcers are that acid-associated or H. pylori-associated, but certainly gastric ulcers, still low risk overall, a 4-4-ish percent risk of, of malignancy associated, but it, you certainly want to biopsy those gastric ulcers. John, what's the management principles for when we deal with bleeding ulcers? So the first step, like most people who are extremists, is resuscitative measures. But the next step after that will be early endoscopy and NG2 placement to confirm, you know, where your bleeding is coming from. Rapid upper endoscopy is usually diagnostic and therapeutic. The way we can treat this bleeding, not usually done from the surgeon's side, is using endoscopic clips, thermal coagulation, injections of vasoactive or sclerosing agents. 
Yeah, exactly. So resuscitate, endoscopic are very effective. So these interventions that you mentioned, the clips, the coagulation, the uh, injection of the vasoactive sclerosine agent, those are typically 90% effective for the, to control the initial bleeding. So what, Kevin, when we talk about a patient's uh, risk of re-bleeding, there's a classification, it's called the, the forest classification. So how does what you see endoscopically predict uh, the chances of a re-bleed in a patient with a, a bleeding ulcer. Yeah, so we're going to start with the lowest and go to the highest. So if you just see a clean base with no visible vessel or clot, it's a very low risk of re-bleeding, less than 5%. If you see adherent clot, there's a 15 to 25% risk of bleeding of re-bleeding. If you actually see the vessel, then there's up to a 50% chance of re-bleeding. And then, of course, if you have actively bleeding pulsatile vessel, it's up to 80% as it's actively bleeding. Great. And you'll see that sometimes on the app side. They'll describe those to you and they'll say, well, you know, which of these has the patients to have the highest risk of re-bleeding. So I would always mix up adherent clot and visible vessel. So it's actually visible vessels, higher risk of bleeding. Yeah. That's what, that's the two they always give you is the adherent clot or the visible vessel. Yep. And the visible vessel is higher risk. Of course, the highest is a pulsatile bleeding vessel, but that one's kind of obvious. Okay, so moving on to gastric ulcers. Well, actually, before we do that, so let's say, Kevin, that you have a, a patient with a, a gastric bleed and they're successfully endoscopically managed, but now they're in the ICU and they re-bleed. What, what do you do in that situation? So generally, they should have another attempt at endoscopy. Yeah, absolutely. So that, And that shows up on the test as well. Uh, if the patient does re-bleed, uh, the second attempt at, at endoscopy uh, as long as they're stable, if they're if they're you know floridly unstable, you may have to go to the operating room. All right. So what do we do in the operating room then? Yeah. Okay. So let's go there. So for bleeding that cannot be controlled endoscopically, or the patient is in you know unstable in hemorrhagic shock, um, you, you take them to the operating room, midline laparotomy, perform an anterior gastrotomy, and then oversew the bleeding area. Again, you want to make sure your biopsy because these can be associated with a malignancy, and then you close your anterior gastrotomy. So let's keep moving on then from gastric ulcers now and talk a little bit about duodenal ulcers. So, Kevin, what's the management for a bleeding duodenal ulcer? So the, the initial management is the same as any upper GI bleed. You resuscitate, you put an NG tube down, and then you do a rapid EGD for diagnosis and treatment. Yep. Again, so endoscopy, you're likely not going to know if it's a gastric or doing an ulcer until you, you get in there. So the, the management is the same as bleeding gastric ulcers. You know, the difference uh, uh, being that, again, for duodenal ulcers, you know, the, there's no emphasis on, on biopsy like there is for gastric ulcers. Surgery is, again, reserved for uncontrolled bleeding or the hemodynamic instability. It's, it's the first and second line uh, management is endoscopic management. But let's say that you do have to go to the operating room, John. What's what do you do for a, a uncontrolled, hemodynamic, unstable patient with a bleeding duodenal ulcer? So the classic operation is a, lent, a longitudinal anterior duodenotomy at the uh, duodenal bulb, and the incision can be carried across the pylorus if necessary. We want to control the bleeding with three-point U-stitch technique. So sutures are placed superior and inferior to the ulcer to control the bleeding from the main vessel. And we want to make sure we take care to avoid the common bile duct. A medial stitch is also then placed to control the black back from the transverse pancreatic artery. We can also ligate the GDA above the duodenum if we are unable to control the bleeding with the U-stitch. And then finally, we want to perform a transverse duodenotomy closure. And you should also be aware that there are therapeutic and geographic interventions that can be done, and it's somewhat institution-specific as to where that falls in the algorithm. But those are becoming more popular, so be aware of those. There are certainly downsides, like that ischemia to the, to the duodenum. But for, you know, for the test, the answer is most likely going to be endoscopic. And then if they're unstable and you can't control it, go to the OR. Now, Kevin, how do we treat, when we talk about bleeding ulcers, what about perforated ulcers? What are some management principles for those? Yeah, so these patients present pretty sick many times. And so you're going to start with resuscitation and NGD compression, and a high-dose PPI, and antibiotics for impure coverage of gram-negative rods, oral flora, and anaerobes. And then sometimes you'll consider adding antifungals in the high-risk population. But generally, you need to get these patients to the operating room for a mental patch repair. And, and what is that? What's an mental patch repair? So you can do this open or laparoscopically, but generally you know, identify the perforation, 
and you take some you know, after irrigation and cleaning it up, you put a well perfused omentum over the perforation site, secure to three or four sutures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, your, our, our gram patch. Uh, there's a couple of variations on it. We can attempt closure of the perforation if able to approximate the edges, but usually the tissues are, are not well. And in your classic description of, of the gram patch, there, there was no um, uh, closure of the perforation, but some people do that. You need to be sure that you leave a drain. And John, what about really large perforations? Like, let's say there's a you know big three centimeter duodenal perforation. Uh, how can you, what are your options there? Yeah. So these ones can be very difficult to deal with and a gram patch typically won't work in these situations. So we could consider doing a jejunal cerebral patch also known as a thal patch. So John, you know, sometimes we hear about doing an acid reducing procedure at the time of a, a perf- uh, surgery for a perforated ulcer. So let's say the patient is undergoing the operation for a complicated gastroduodenal ulcer. And they have a long history of being on PPIs and uh, they've had H. pylori and they've had it documented that it's been eradicated. So in other words, they have, you know, medically or they have refractory ulcer disease. What do you think about these acid-reducing procedures? What are they? So the, the classic, the most common or classic one is the truncal bichotomy and pyloroplasty. Uh, however, nowadays we will typically perform a highly selective bichotomy. Uh, which then preserves the motor innervation to the pylorus, eliminating the need for a drainage procedure. Your final option is a vagotomy and entrectomy. Uh, these have higher morbidity just due to the need for a Bellroth reconstruction, but they are reserved for patients that are stable and have anatomic indications, such as a large antral ulcer or pyloric scarring. Yeah, we're certainly doing less and less of these as PPIs are very effective. And, you know, if they give you that scenario where they, they're laying all that out for you, that they've been treated for everything and they still got this, you would want to consider doing one of these acid-reducing procedures. That's where they're trying to lead you. I should mention just briefly that you know, marginal ulcers after bariatric surgery, are, it's a very similar presentation and they're managed uh, exactly the same as a duodenal ulcer. So let's move on now to some gastric neoplasms. So let's start with hyperplastic polyps. Kevin, what are hyperplastic polyps and what do you do about them? So these are the most common polyps and they have a very low malignant potential. If they're under half a centimeter, you can observe them. If they're greater than half a centimeter, you need to do endoscopic resection and biopsy of the surrounding mucosa. Okay, great. Moving on to another very common neoplasm of the stomach is a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. So what are those and what is their malignant potential? So this is the most common mesenchymal tumor of the GI tract. They have malignant potential is is based on the size and number of mitoses per high-powered field. Great. So these just, you know, these originate from those interstitial cells of Kajal. You may see that on there. Their pathology will show either spindle or epithelioid cells. These are generally CD117 or CKIT gene positive. Other things you might see on your pathology report or in the question stem is CD34, DOG1, Desmond, Vimentin, and other. Are, those are all other possible markers. There's a variation called the PDG-FRA. That's an alternate oncogenic pathway. So unfortunately, you do need to memorize these because these might show up in a question stem and that might be your only clue to identify that you're dealing with a GIST. Now, it's important to note that uh, GIST metastasize through homogenous spread. They don't go to the lymph nodes. Most common uh, distant met is to the liver and to the peritoneal surfaces. So, you know, there there is a, a staging of GIST, and that's in the abside companion for you to review. But really the important things are the things that portend a poor prognosis. So what are those factors that that lead to a, a poor prognosis for patients, John? Yeah, so that's if you have a gist that's located in the esophagus, colon, or rectum, they have poor prognosis. If it's large, greater than 10 centimeters, and if it has 10 mitoses per 10 high power fields, and loca- local evasion to surrounding structures or distant metastases are all po- poor prognosis factors. Yeah, that's great. So again, location in esophagus, colon, rectum, they're large size, 10 centimeters, high mitotic rates, 10 mitoses per 10 hyperfield, local invasion, and distant meds are your poor prognostic factors. Kevin, treatment of a gist. Yeah, so this would be an in-block resection with negative margins. Okay, what about, when would you consider neoadjuvant uh, therapy and what is a neoadjuvant therapy? 
Yeah, so you can use a neoadjuvant mantinib or Gleevec for large and locally advanced tumors. Okay, yeah, a little bit vague there, but yeah, large, again, those poor prognostic factors, you can you consider adding a neoadjuvant uh, Gleevec. But again, what we talked about, you're right, in block resection, one centimeter margins, there is no need for a lymphadenectomy because, again, these don't spread, typically spread to lymph nodes. So resection of the primary tumor is even considered and often indicated, even in metastatic disease, for palliation, for symptom control. Sometimes these can bleed. Sometimes they can obstruct. And then adjuvant uh, matinum, when do you add that? For those at intermediate or high risk of recurrence based on tumor biology. Yeah, you know, the cutoff used to be five centimeters and greater than five mitoses for the five high-powered fields. It's a little bit more, it's, the indication has been expanded, so that it's more of those patients that are deemed to be intermediate or high risk. Again, that's somewhat vague, but just be aware that imatinib is an option for both neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting to lower that risk of recurrence or, or, or spread. So what what we, we're talking a lot about this Gleevec imatinib, Kevin? What what is that? Yeah, it's actually a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Yeah, exactly. So there are going to be tumor tumors that are resistant to Gleevec based on their oncogenes. And so, what's an option for a imatinib resistant gist? Yeah, so they have a new drug now called tunitinib, and it's actually a multi-targeted receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Okay, so moving on now to gastric cancer. So, Kevin, what are risk factors for gastric cancer? Yeah, so you have H. pylori, smoking, heavy alcohol intake, high salts, and nitrates. Yep, okay, great. So these are typically classified as intestinal type or diffuse type. That's the Loring classification. Most are sporadic. Uh, there's 5 to 10% that are familial and 3 to 5% that are associated with uh, an inherited syndrome, such as hereditary diffuse uh, gastric cancer, which is an autosomal dominant disorder that is uh, secondary to germline mutations in the CDH1. Believe it or not, I have seen that on the exam before, that CDH1 association with hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. How do you treat these patients, these patients with this hereditary diffuse gastric cancer? Again, CDH1, just burn that into your memory. Yes, terrible problem, and they need to get a prophylactic gastrectomy, generally between the ages of 18 and 40. Yep, the prophylactic gastrectomy sounds extreme, but that's for those CDH1 carriers. Women with CDH1 are at increased risk of breast cancer as well, similar to BRCA patients. So also remember that association. John, what are some other hereditary syndromes with an increased gastric cancer risk? Yeah, some ones that you might see pop up is Lynch syndrome, which is a DNA mismatch gene. Juvenile polyposis syndrome, which is your SMAD4 gene, Puch-Jagger syndrome, and finally familial adenovirus uh, polyposis, which is your APC gene on 5Q21. Yeah, great. So, you know, these gene associations that are terrible, they're annoying, but sometimes, occasionally, they will show up on the exam, so they're worth reviewing to get those easy points. So, uh, Kevin, you have a patient that uh, has uh, gastric cancer, so how, how do you go about staging uh, gastric cancers? Yeah, for these patients, you get routine labs, and then what's critical to it is your CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and then you need to do your endoscopic ultrasound with FNA and generally a PET scan also. Okay, great. Yeah, labs, the CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, EUS, FNA, and a PET CT for gastric cancer. What about the role of a staging laparoscopy, John? So the NCCN recommends laparoscopic staging with paratail washings for clinical stage greater than T1B tumors if chemo radiation or surgery is being considered. It's not needed if known metastases or if they're undergoing definitive chemoration or palliative options. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if they're, you know, going to get neoadjuvant or they're undergoing definitive chemo rads, palliative options, obviously don't need a, a staging uh, laparoscopy, but yeah, greater than T1B tumors, but we'll need a staging laparoscopy according to the NCCN recommendation. Okay, we're going to go through some staging pearls. Fortunately, a gastric cancer staging is very similar to esophageal cancer with the addition of the serosa. So for your T stage, your T1A invades the lamina propria or the muscularis mucosa, whereas T1B invades the submucosa. Again, that's that distinction between T1A and T1B for the need for a staging laparoscopy. T1B invades submucosa. T2 invades the muscularis propria, where T3 invades the subserosa, and T4 invades through the serosa into adjacent structures. 
for your end staging, so N1 is one to two nodes, N2 is three to six, and N3 involves seven or more nodes. And then, of course, M0 and M1 is either the presence or absence of distant metastasis. So again, very similar to esophageal cancer, but the esophagus does not have that cirrhosis. So Kevin, what, what is considered unresectable disease in terms of gastric cancer? Yeah, so this is when you have peritoneal involvement or distal metastases. Also, if the root of the mesentery is involved, or there are any para-aortic nodal disease confirmed by biopsy. And then, of course, any encasement of major vascular structures also. Yeah, yeah. the encasement of, of major vascular structures excluding the splenic vessels, because you can do a, a splenectomy with your gastrectomy. So, But certainly encasement of any other major vascular structure would be unresectable disease. And again, peritoneal involvement, that's why that staging laparoscopy recommendation is there, because that's considered unresectable. So, John, what about neoadjuvant therapy? Who gets neoadjuvant therapy? Yeah, you see, these are patients with clinical T2 or higher at any nodal involvement. Patients typically receive the entire chemotherapy regimen up front prior to surgery. And once again, this is similar to both esophageal and rectal cancer. Yep, great. So yeah, the upfront therapy, that uh, complete upfront neoadjuvant therapy, as you say, similar to esophageal and rectal cancer. So a surgical principle. So let's say that they have resectable disease and you're going to perform your gastrectomy. What are some surgical principles, Kevin? Yeah, so you want to have a resection of at least six centimeter margins and lymph node harvest of at least 16 nodes for staging, ideally close to 30. Yeah, so the type of resection, either a total versus subtotal gastrectomy, as well as the extent of lymph node dissection, D1 versus D2, which we'll talk about here in a minute, it is somewhat controversial. Subtotal gastrectomy is preferred for distal lesions, so that's sewer 3. Again, we'll review those sewer classifications. For your partial gastrectomy, and when it like, like Kevin said, a six centimeter proximal margin, the distal margin should be post pyloric with at least a two centimeter margin. So six centimeters proximal, past the pylorus, two centimeters. So proximal tumors, those Seward two uh, tumors, will generally need a total gastrectomy with esophagojejunostomy. The distal portion of the esophagus may need to be resected for adequate margins. And tumors that are crossing that GE junction are classified and treated as esophageal cancer. So, uh, John, what about the role of prophylactic splenectomy during your gastrectomy for gastric cancer? So you don't need to perform a prophylactic splenectomy. Uh, the only reason you would do this, if the spleen or the hilum were grossly involved with the tumor. Yep. Well, like we talked about, um, if there's, that does not make it unresectable if it's associated with those splenic vessels. Kevin, I mentioned a D1 versus a TD2 lymph node dissection. What are the types of lymph node dissections with gastric cancer? Yeah, I think the most important ones to know are the D1 and the D2. The D1 is where you take the perigastric nodes along the greater and lesser curve. So that's generally always done in these stomach cancer cases. Now, the D2 is the next level. It's basically where you trace out all the major vessels, the left gastric, the common hepatic, the celiac, and splenic arteries, and you take the nodes along those vessels. And that's a more extensive dissection, has some more morbidity associated with it. Then you can also get into further ones, such as the D3, which is where you're going along the patodudinal ligament, the retropancreatic space, the root of the SMV and the SMA. And then there's even a D4, which is where you get the periaortic nodes. Great. That's, yeah, that's a great way of breaking that down. It can be very confusing. So a gastrectomy with a D2 dissection, that's the standard in Asia. However, Western studies have, have failed to demonstrate survival between a D2 and a D1 dissection. And the D2 dissection may be associated with increased morbidity or mortality. Although, you know, in those studies, the increased morbidity was likely attributed to the splenectomy. So there have been subsequent meta-analysis that showed a D2 without splenectomy had superior recurrence-free survival and, trend, and trended to improved overall survival. The current NCCN recommendation is for R0 resection with at least D1 or modified D2 lymph node dissection. So Kevin, when is uh, adjuvant therapy recommended and, and what is it? Yeah, so if you have node-positive disease or a T3 or T4 tumor, then you need to do adjuvant therapy, and generally it's adjuvant 5-fluorouracil. Great. Okay, so let's move. Gastric cancer is a big topic. Uh, a lot of stuff to remember there, but it's, it's certainly highly testable. So make sure you review that several times. So let's move on to some post-gastrectomy syndromes. So, John, what's a, what do we, what's a retained antrum syndrome? Yeah, so that's retained antral tissue within the duodenal stump after a gastric resection. 
Yeah, so the G cells are, are then bathed in your alkaline fluid, and that leads to a continuous gastrin release, acid production in the proximal uh, stomach remnant, and it can lead to ulceration. So you don't want to forget about those gastrin secreting tumors and those rare things, So and just assume that it's retained antrum syndrome. So you do want to check gastric levels to rule out a gastrin secreting tumor. But the treatment for retained antrum syndrome is PPI, as well as vagotomy and resection of that retained antrum. John, what about doping syndrome? What's doping syndrome? Yeah, so that's categorized as tachycardia, diaphoresis, and dizziness and flushing. There's two types. You have early dumping syndrome, which usually occurs between 20 and 30 minutes after a meal. And this occurs due to the abrupt hyperosmolar load to the small intestine. Then you have late dumping syndrome, which occurs one to four hours after a meal. And this is due to the rapid carbohydrate load to the small intestine, resulting in a large insulin surge and rebound hypoglycemia. Okay, how do you manage? Uh, yeah, I agree. Early, late dumping syndrome. How do you manage these? Yeah, it's usually dietary management, but you can typically counsel the patient to do small meals and no sugary drinks to reduce that carbo- carbohydrate load. And then, but for refractory dumping syndrome, you can try octreotide. Okay, perfect. Now, we talked a little bit about bile reflux or alkaline reflux gastritis previously, but let's review it again. So what is alkaline reflux gastritis and when does it occur? Yeah, it usually occurs after Bilroth 1 and Bilroth 2 reconstructions. You diagnose this, like we talked about before, with impedance studies. The medical management is you want to use prokinetic agents and bile acid binding resins. And then your kind of your ultimate surgical management would be a conversion to a ruin Y. Okay. What's an important principle when you that conversion to a ruin Y for bile reflux gastritis after a bill up to two? What's a key principle there? Yeah, you want to worry about your rule limb length, and you want to be at least 50 centimeters to avoid recurrent bile reflux. Okay, great. Kevin, moving on. What about afferent limb syndrome? What is that? Yeah, so that's when you have an acute or chronic obstruction of the afferent and jejunal limb following a Billerop 2 reconstruction. And the, so, yeah, that results in increased luminal pressure of that afferent limb. And what are the symptoms of afferent limb syndrome? So I just want to pause real quick here because I found this slightly confusing when I was a trainee in what is the afferent limb. So it's also, you could also call it the biliopancreatic limb. So no food is passing through this. This is just where your bile and pancreatic enzymes are passing through as they meet up later. So what you can get with this is you can get acute or chronic obstruction and you can get obstructive jaundice, cholangitis, pancreatitis from backup pressure in the biliopancreatic limb. And then you can also get terrible things such as a duodenal stump blowout. And then occasionally you get bacterial overgrowth in the afferent limb. Okay, what happens with that? that what's the mechanism behind that bacterial overgrowth in that afferent limb? What happens? Yeah, so the deconjugated bile acids result in steatorrhea, malnutrition, and vitamin B12 deficiency, leading to megaloblastic anemia. Awesome. So what is uh, the treatment then? So you can start with treating these patients with antibiotics, so there's a high relapse rate. And so if you need something further, you can convert this Bilroth 2 into either a Ruin Y with a long limb, or you can do a Bilroth 1. Great. It's also important to mention that if you get these patients, these Bilroth 2 patients that uh, present with a bowel obstruction, you know, you need to treat them like you would a patient with similar to Ruin Y anatomy. You can't really decompress that afferent limb with NG decompression. So you need to take those patients to the operating room. Okay, well, I think we've made it. We're, we're moving on now to our quick hits for stomach. So let's do it, guys. Okay, Kevin, what are the lab findings seen with gastroparesis or gastric outlet obstruction? So generally, they're going to have a hypokalemic, hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis with elevated gastrin levels. Yep, exactly. And, and the gastrin release is, a, is due to the distension of the stomach. Okay, John, what do you do if you need more esophageal length doing, during a parasophageal hernia repair? We talked about it before. Yep, that would be your colus gastroplast. Colus gastroplast, exactly. Okay, Kevin, I have a patient who is unable to swallow and handle their own secretions after a Nissen. What's the problem and what's the management? Yeah, so it sounds like the wrap is too tight. You need to return to the operating room, room and revise it. Exactly. You know, like we mentioned, a little bit of dysphagia is, is to be expected, but if they can't handle their own secretions, that wraps too tight. You got to go back to the OR. Uh, John, type of ulcers associated with increased acid output. That'd be your type two and three. Yep. Type two and three are associated with high acid output. Uh, Kevin, uh, which ulcers are uh, associated with decreased mucosal protection? 
type one and four. Yep. One and four decreased mucosal protection, type two and three high acid output. John, you have a hyal hernia is discovered at the time of sleeve gastrectomy. What do you do? You want to repair the hyal hernia. Yep. So if you see a, an incidental hyal hernia during a sleeve, uh, the answer is, is repair it. Kevin, uh, you have a patient with a history of uh, an antrectomy. He's got Billroth II reconstruction. This was done in the distant past. who presents with intermittent abdominal pain and distension, which is relieved after a bilious emesis. He's got megaloplastic anemia on his laboratory workup. What is this? Yeah, this is a classic afferent limb syndrome. Right, which we just talked about. So afferent limb syndrome. Okay, John, what's the diagnosis of a patient who has multiple duodenal ulcers and the gastrin level is over 1,000? That would be Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Exactly. And so that the, the gastrin over a thousand is diagnostic Zollinger Ellison syndrome. Kevin. So there's a branch of the posterior vagus nerve that is missed during a highly selective agonomy and results in recurrent ulcer disease. What is that nerve? This is the criminal nerve of Grassi. An old criminal nerve of Grassi. You gotta make sure you get that. Okay. John, so there's a, a gist mutation that is resistant to a matinib. Yeah, that's the mutation PDGFRA. Yep, PDGFRA. That would be a dirty question if they give you that and they ask you what the adjuvant therapy is, but the, the PDGFRA is resistant to imatinib. Okay, Kevin, a gastric mass with biopsy showing expansion of the marginal zone compartment with development of sheets of neoplastic small lymphoid cells. What is that? So you see that in the, the test description, right? Marginal zone compartment, development sheets of neoplastic small lymphoid cells. What is the diagnosis and what is the treatment? Yeah, this is a maltoma, and you can actually treat this with antibiotics. So the triple therapy for H. pylori will treat this. Yep, no surgery, antibiotics. And that's the way they'll write it. They'll say, what is the treatment? And the answer is antibiotics. And Jason, let me throw one at you. What if you did have that resistance in matinib? What would you give them? As you mentioned previously, that's that sunindib. And that does it. That was a long one, but that's for your stomach review for the app site. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site.